the end of the day, it's all about scale, right? Large companies and companies of three or four people face the same challenges, right? I don't want people to think or listen to this, oh, wow, I'm not in that size company, doesn't, you know, that's not really affecting me. It's the same thing and how people really work. So I really think it comes down to teamwork, trust, communication, psychological safety and vulnerability as the underpinnings in in all of that creates a sense of belonging and connection in where people can do great work. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host Nick Day. Tune in to discover what it takes to truly develop within human resources as we delve deep into growth, engagement and leadership strategies that will help you unlock the hidden potential within your business. By listening to this podcast, we hope to empower you and your workforce towards achieving significant HR organizational success. Hello and welcome to the HR LND podcast. So today I sit down with Jason Troy, a Chief People Officer and Culture and Leadership Expert who helps leaders, managers and HR professionals build high performing cultures and teams. Now we know that our HR LND podcast listeners are always looking for new best practice methods to maximise productivity and of course enjoyment in the workplace. And this is where I really hope Jason can help you because he is a leadership expert who knows how to increase productivity by creating engaged and and happy workforces. And today he shares with us his blueprint for creating high performance cultures. Now, if you're not familiar with Jason Troy, he is the best-selling author of Social Wealth, which has sold more than 45,000 copies. He believes the lack of employee engagement in a workplace is killing productivity, which is costing industries billions. So for Jason, the solution is quite simple. It's all about employee connections, and that's something we talk about an awful lot in today's episode. It's a subject he's also talked about as a featured TEDx speaker, where at TEDx Wilmington 2017, he unveiled his breakthrough team building game, Cards Against Mundanity. Uh, we're going to find out a little bit more about that as well as the episode progresses. So he also hosts Executive Breakthroughs, which is a podcast that brings together game-changing CEOs, entrepreneurs, and experts to share their breakthroughs and breakdowns. It's an episode you're very much going to enjoy sit down relax and uh, here we go five quick questions understanding where we are to know where we are going jason uh, you've been coaching and training your high performance programs now for over 10 years to over thirty thousand employees where did this work all start all started back when i started working in silicon valley i was out there in 1997 to 2005 and then worked in total probably more than 15 years And I got to work with some great leaders like Steve Jobs and Mark Cuban and, you know, got to be around the CEO of Salesforce.com, Mark Benioff, and a lot of pretty high profile people and profile companies. And I got to see a lot of great things and a lot of really poor things, great leadership, poor leadership, right? Great teamwork. And... I realized it was the interactions between people and how they brought the best out of each other. They could rise up to do some pretty incredible things. Um, Because when I went back to Apple, they were a bottom feeding company, right? They only had customers really in education and art market and some other things that were, you know, they were really nothing like they are today at all. So it was amazing to see how they transformed the company. In, in companies such as that, how they really did things differently. And I was really intrigued at how that was all put together and how could you actually structure it in a way that it was repeatable. 
Sure, sure. And that makes sense. You've obviously worked with some amazing names there that you've just mentioned. So you've worked, as you said, right at the coalface with some of the biggest and most successful companies that the world has seen, right? So from your perspective, how can companies go about you know, using all the knowledge and, and, and everything that you've experienced? How can they go about creating a really high-performance culture, very much like the companies you've just mentioned? Um, what would be your, your, I guess, key points to raise if someone was listening to this now to say, I want to p- p- create a performance, high-performance culture. What do I need to do? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, at a really high level, you have to start thinking about the values, right? And the principles that you want the business to, you know, look like and feel like and have everyone live every day and then embed it in the business. I think secondarily, you have to understand the employee experience, like you'd understand the customer journey. Because that's a pretty critical part of it. And then I think the third part of it, which is really the overlooked part by far more than every company and where they really struggle is to build the foundation. And the key thing of when I'm going in and looking at companies and helping them, and I've done this research now for now, it's going on five years, is they don't understand that. Because what it has to be built on is extreme trust. And extreme trust is the same trust you'd have for the people that you love and care about the most. Because if you don't have that, you don't have psychological safety, which Amy Edmondson talks about, and she's a famous Harvard professor and researcher, that allows people to speak their mind, dissent, have diversity of thinking, which creates the greatest opportunities to do amazing work, right? Because you don't have a bunch of people thinking the same thing and acting the same way. But you have to have a safe place for that. And you have to trust people that they'll have their backs. They'll be with you when the chips are down. You can share yourself and not hide. You can have hard conversations. All of those things are in very short supply. And that then goes on the back of you know great teamwork and communication. So that's really where it all starts. And where now most companies are backing into that. There are very few companies that have mastered that at all, right? I mean, I would even probably say there are handfuls in the world that have, right? Because I'm working with a lot of people who care deeply, but they don't know what to do and where to start. With that in mind, then, you've mentioned trust and collaboration being critical. What are the other key concepts that business leaders really need to understand if they want to start that foundation process, start that journey to creating a really high-performing culture? And what actions can businesses take, regardless of size? Because obviously, we've talked about some really big hitters there that can really help them expedite that process. Yeah, because I think at the end of the day, it's all about scale, right? It, 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 large companies and companies of three or four people face the same challenges, right? The scale is different. So I don't want people to think or listen to this, oh, wow, I'm not in that size company. Doesn't, you know, that's not really affecting me. It's the same thing and how people really work. So I really think it comes down to, you know, we talk about teamwork, trust, communication, psychological safety and vulnerability as the underpinnings. And, and all of that creates a sense of belonging, right? And connection and where people can do great work because that's when the research starts to show down, it comes down to those feelings. And so I think what people can do and what I found and one of the games I created was Cards Against Mundanity and it's a free or you can, there's a paid version of it. 
And essentially what it is, is getting in groups of people and sharing experiences that matter most to them so the people around them can get to know them extremely well so they can interact better with them, communicate better, resolve conflicts, right? Because I found one-on-one discussions can be helpful, but the group conversation is the most important part because you have to be able to interact in groups and be yourself and not feel like you have to hide. And the essence of it is asking questions that you'd ask people that you really know well, such as, tell me the most important lesson you've learned in the last year, Tell me about the one person that's really made the biggest impact. And if you could thank them, who would it be and why did they do that? Right? I mean, questions along that, because that really gives insight into the makeup of the individual, the psychological makeup, their background. And that way, you know, I would say the second thing you're seeing a lot of leaders do in different variations is a how to work with me manual, which is a, which is a set of questions that's like an instruction manual you go get for something complicated you put together, right? Instead of guessing how to work with the people around you, what if they told you exactly what they liked, didn't like, how to approach them in difficult conversations, right? And a whole host of other things so you you wouldn't have to guess, right? Because that's the problem. We guess and try to predict and we're wrong and then other people don't tell us we're wrong and then they get mad at us, right? Especially when we don't act like them. So I think like those are two things. But there are other things you can do in team meetings, I think, like gratitude, giving people feedback um, that's positive, right? Peer feedback and peer recognition is really important. I think the next thing you do is you can have people, WD-40 is an interesting thing. They have every employee signs a contract. Um, it's not like a legally binding thing, but it tells people, here's what we expect for me to work. Like one of them's on... You know, you have to ask questions and you can't get stuck. If you're not asking questions, right, you are doing something wrong in this company. It's not upon everyone else to do it for you. And so I think when you set those foundational elements up, right, and that's just the tip of the iceberg, you create a place where then you can get all the other things done that you want and you can build a high performance environment and you can have actual real teamwork between people not something that people just mouth the words to but it's not really happening funny enough you can tell this is a live recording because my next question was really to talk all about your uh, it was quite very much a breakthrough team building game which you've just talked about there which is the cards against mundanity uh, game and um you know without uh, meaning to sound salesy here, I would recommend anyone listening to this does go and take a look at the link to the uh, to, to the game. It's completely free to download, and I'll put an ep- a link in the episode notes. But it's a really good game for, as you mentioned, asking some some quite uh, lateral questions, some some interesting questions that are going to get responses that um, you know for, for things that perhaps you hadn't expected. It's hard to explain without seeing it, but I recommend you go to the site. So I will put a link in the notes. And interestingly, something I picked up from from you just there, Jason, is. It's clear that within leadership, one of the problems I think that, that we're seeing, and I think you've touched upon it there, is a lot of leaders will take a blanket approach to leadership. So we'll address the same issue with the same, you know, everyone is different, but we'll address the issue in the same way, regardless of personality. I think if we can get to understand how people function and how they react differently by using some of the tools that you've just given us there to, to create that foundation, then it will change the way that leaders are approaching those issues and will make them more individual. But I guess, are there any additional tips, particularly from a leadership perspective, that you might you, you can give that would really help them uncover, I guess, more of the, uh, in inverted commas, blind spots or 
hidden potential or even negative patterns that might be inhibiting success? You know, if you're a leader at the moment, maybe it's holding you back. Yeah, I think there's a there's there's several things that you can do. So one of them is you have to institute a feedback culture, right? And I think companies are trying to do this, like having open communications on Slack, right? Having town halls, right? Asking questions, getting more feedback, right? But the first place for a manager to start is a one-on-one. And it's asking hard questions of other people and getting feedback, right? And one of the questions to ask someone would be on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate our relationship? Why would you rate it? And how can I move it closer to a 10? Because that opens up the manager and leaner to being vulnerable because it puts the other person in the driver's seat to give them honest, candid feedback, right? And then you have to report back on it when you meet with them once. And if you do something like that once a month, right, you then create a different relationship with that person. And now you know where you stand with them, right? Because before you'd guess, and when I've asked this to hundreds of people to rate their relationships between people and then go back and ask them, they're almost always wrong. And so it's a really valuable tool. And then when you do something like that, you can then turn around and ask someone, well, how would you rate your work product, right? Or whatever you're doing on a scale of one to 10 and why? And then you earn the right to give them feedback. So you can be much more proactive in getting ahead of things and giving them feedback. I would say the other thing to do is self-awareness work, right? I think every leader and manager, the problem is they have blind spots and patterns that are holding them back, right? And you have to understand what those are. And that requires you to get help and then to get feedback from people that know you well. And one of the things I told people, the reason that blind spots are so challenging for people is that our brains are wired for survival and they're wired for us to be able to just live. So they block out a lot of the things that we see. For instance, you know, people listen to this. The example would be you have a friend that keeps doing the same crazy thing over and over again and you point out to them the problems and the issues and what it's getting into, but they keep doing it. And you're like, I can't believe they're doing it again. Well, that's because we can't see ourselves. And where this all emanates from, if the blind spots end up happening, an example would be I've had leaders that are poor listeners. And they've been given feedback on how to listen better, but it doesn't work. Because a lot of the times what will happen is those blind spots are linked to patterns that they picked up either in childhood or in early adulthood, right? And an example of being a poor listener would be I've had people who've grown up in large families of like six kids and they've had to yell over mom and dad or yell over the kids to have mom and dad to hear them, right? So they learned at an early age, if they stayed quiet, they wouldn't get anything. But if they yelled over people and didn't listen, mom and dad would respond. Well, what ends up happening is that's your blueprint to see the world. So unconsciously, you do that in all of your interactions. Not because you're a bad person. It's just that that's how you had to survive to get what you needed. And so once you can identify those patterns and make the linkages, what happens in your brain is that it, it doesn't go into fight or flight mode. Because if you're given like a 360 review, a lot of times when people are given that, they look at it very negatively. So then they take the feedback and they get grumpy about it and maybe they'll do it or maybe they won't, but it gets in their emotional brain. But when you talk about patterns, it goes to your executive brain where you're making the logic part of it, the smart part of you. And you take that and are willing to get the feedback and institute it. And then when you get the evidence, you'll do it much quicker 
and much more of it to get results. Listening intently here, and it's raised a couple of questions for me. I think certainly what resonated a lot is people pick up on negatives much more than positives. And I find that you can give 10 pieces of positive information, but they'll remember the one piece of negative. And that, you know, that's something that I've had to become more aware of in my own management style. But interestingly, on that feedback piece, how does that work in practice? Because if I gave an individual uh, someone to feedback, you know, how they, how they valued or how they viewed our relationship in one to 10, I wonder whether they'd give a biased response because they want to give something that I want to hear. So is that done independently or is that something that also as, as time progresses, they're going to have an expectation that that number is going to need to improve? So I know honesty is important in this, in this task, but in reality, is that a difficult thing to manage or is there a process you'd recommend that we follow to make sure that um, you know, the bias within that process potentially is, is mitigated? Okay, so when you ask it the first time to someone, they may seem awkward and they may not know what to do. So you have to front load it by saying to them, look, I value this relationship and I want to have a good relationship. And if you're not honest with me and I don't know where I stand with you, I can't do anything about it. So you can't be upset with me if I don't understand you, if you won't share what you're feeling and thinking and then allow me the opportunity to respond, right? And so the first time you do with someone, maybe you don't get the real number. But if you keep asking it, you will, because the other person will see it. And the key thing is, what do you do with that feedback? And the next time you have the conversation, you have to bring that back up and ask them again, because relationships will ebb and flow. Perhaps you've got a great relationship with someone you're managing, and then in just some instance, they get upset with you. Well, you know, they may be giving you an eight, nine, or 10, and then all of a sudden they give you a five. Well, the great thing about it is it's an early warning system because they're bringing you the problem and not letting it fester, right? So then, so it's going to ebb and flow. No relationship is always going to be great for a lot of reasons. And, and a lot of times it's the stories we make up in our head. But the reason it's so important is I do a lot of conflict resolution work. And most of the times what ends up happening is it's some argument three, four, five years ago that happened or disagreement that's so tiny you look at me and say to me, well, that's, I mean, almost insignificant, but it's snowballed into something that's causing major problems on the team or the organization itself because no one ever brought it up and it's never been resolved. And now it's taken on all these legs, arms, and other things that never existed before that people have made up, right? They've invented this uh, fairy tale in their head of this monster when it's really a mouse, right? But we can't, we don't see that and we don't bring it up and we don't deal with it. So we have to have mechanisms all the time, right? The Navy SEALs do a great thing after every mission. They, so, and anyone can do this in a company after any milestone, any project, event, is that you ask five basic questions, right? What were our intended results or actual results? What went well? What didn't do well? And what are we going to do next time? Right. And if you bring those up and then start with the most junior person on the team and go all the way around, right? So you don't have any bias on the senior person or the manager and leader, you'd be amazed at the discussion and the things that you can learn. Right. So you have to have this feedback and you have to have it be candid. And that's why you have to work on building trust amongst every person on the team because otherwise people harbor these stories in their head. Right. In the end of the day, any business is a bunch of different teams, right? And in, in team, it comes down to the team level. And if you look in last year's Harvard Business Review May issue, 
um, I think his name's Marcus Buckingham, did a lot of research and boiled it down to a lot that really is on the team level, not the company level where it starts at. And I really think that that's true. So these are just some things that you can do to get people, I think, to start the conversation and give you the feedback. Because the problem as a manager is you don't have that much time, right? I mean, I saw another stat by Gartner, like most companies are expecting managers to spend 30% of their time managing, and it's really down around 10. Well, if that's the case, you're only spending 10%. You have to have people be proactive and give you the feedback and not you always have to ask or dig or try to anticipate it because it's impossible for you if you're only spending that amount of time with all your employees on your team. I think you've, you've articulated that absolutely brilliantly. I've taken notes myself. We've got appraisals coming up with my own firm. And I think I need to make a few changes. I think one thing uh, prior to answering my last question that you mentioned, which I loved, and I, I took a took mental note of that here, which is how many businesses are actually asking their employees to rate the product that they're selling. And I've certainly, I don't think that's something I've ever done in my own firm. So we specialize in, in recruitment services for payroll and HR professionals, but I don't think I've ever asked my team to say out of one to 10, how good do you rate our service? For me as a manager, I've probably just assumed they view it the same way I do. And that's certainly an exercise that I think I need to take on board with my team to see how, how actually they position it in their own minds in the business. Now, I wonder how many other companies are doing that, whether you're selling software, you know, other products, products to consumers, products to businesses. How often are they actually rating or being asked to rate that service or rate that product? It'd be interesting to see the results. Yeah, because it's like kind of like the, it's, it's doing, you know, the net promoter score on the employee side, right? I mean, that's another great thing to have companies do is, you know, how, how would you recommend, you know, on the company to a good friend, or I can't remember what the other, I'm, I'm missing it up right now, but I think like the net, the employee net promoter score is a great way to do it, right? There's another piece that people I'm seeing are doing that are using great places to work. They have a trust index and asking questions and they're doing what they call sort of pulses on Fridays where they send them out to employees to give feedback and asking different questions every week. Um, and I think all of those things are important to do. And they're really not that much money. I mean, you can find ways to survey monkey to do it and just ask questions, right? They don't have to be perfect. And yeah, it's nice to have a bunch of analytics in the background. But at the end of the day, that's not, you, there's ways of getting around it so you can do it, right? Even if it's imperfect, it's better to be imperfect than it is not to do it at all. And the problem is that most businesses, aren't doing it at all. And so they don't know what's going on at all. So something I, I thought was really interesting in my research uh, for this podcast, I read that you you said that uh, you know every leader eventually, and every leader, there wasn't you know any particular type of leader, but every leader will eventually feel like they're getting stuck. They're going to feel restless. They're eventually going to hit what in their mindset is their rock bottom if they don't take action. So I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit more, what you're meaning by that and what kind of actions are you referring to that they, they can take to to try and pull themselves out of that, particularly if there's an HRLND list, you know, leader listening to this right now who may be feeling a little bit restless or a little bit stuck. Why might that be and what actions can they take? End of the day, your natural skills and ability, no matter how good they are, will eventually run out. And the things that are blocking you are you, meaning your lack of self-awareness on your blind spots, right? And if you want to look at the data, they had a research study a couple of years ago where they looked at 5,000 senior leaders from across the globe and they asked their employees to rate them on 20 different leadership um, scales and they did the same on themselves. And what they found is that in, across all the leaders, 
out of the 20 categories, 19 of them, they significantly overrated themselves compared to how other people viewed them. So the problem is we aren't being honest with ourselves at our skill level. And in today's world, what makes the difference, you can look at LinkedIn's list of soft skills or whatever you want to call them. I call them power skills, right? Or top skills to be great in your job. They're almost all soft skills. And that means you have to invest in them, learn them, practice them, get feedback. They're much harder than a hard skill. And the problem is we're not curious enough. We're not developing ourselves. Companies are struggling with it. So you have to manage your development. You can't offload it to an organization itself. You have to be proactive as an employee, right? As a manager and a leader to keep getting better and to keep looking at ways to improve and add to your skill sets and to then question the ways that you're thinking, the ways that you're aware around. That's why this feedback is so important because you can't do it alone and by yourself. And so what ends up happening when you don't is that when you feel restless, unmotivated, or procrastinating a lot, you end up you're hitting a ceiling and you're not in the right place, the right zone, and there are other things that are coming into play. And then I look back at the times, when was I really feeling like I was in a zone and what did that look like? Then I start doing work in these areas. And what happens is, is that when we start taking steps, it's not the progress that gets us more motivated and excited. It's the actual feeling like we're making progress, right? So it's the taking the action that gets you motivated. It's not the end state. So when you start doing these things, you can break through the eventual ceiling that you'll end up getting to no matter who you are across the board, right? It doesn't matter if you're, you know, like some famous CEO or some well-known individual, right? That's why you see a lot of Hollywood stars implode themselves because they're bored and they don't know what to do, right? And so when you don't know what to do, the first thing you do is distraction things like Netflix, you start drinking, you start doing other things because you're not facing the person in the mirror. Yeah, no, that makes it makes it makes total sense. And again, you've, 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 you 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 create really good visions in the way you talk, Jason. So you're creating really good images for me that that, that really puts it into perspective. So thank you. And something else I read, and you've, you touched upon this earlier in, in the example you gave, where you might be a child in a big family trying to find your voice, and it can obviously impact the way that you potentially lead others in the future. Obviously, you're very much an expert when it comes to the psychology of leadership as well. And, and I read that. You believe that children who have suffered trauma, particularly under the age of 10 years, can often, as a result of that, the manifestation of that trauma can sometimes become an inhibitor to business business success later. So I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about your research in that area and just, just, just sort of expand upon that for us. Well, the challenge is, is that when you're growing up, your parents and the people closest to you are doing the best job they can, right? But they have their own challenges themselves, right? And they paint a certain blueprint of you, of the world for you. And so as you're inheriting that blueprint, what happens is, is that you take that going forward and that's part of your, you know, habits and other things and mindset that are unconsciously running in the background. But just like that example I'm listening, right? Back then when you were a kid yelling over your siblings, that actually was serving you. The problem is now when you're a leader or manager, those same actions are actually sabotaging your success. 
but your brain doesn't know the difference because it's on autopilot because you've done it billions and trillions of times literally in your head on how you're thinking about what's going on, right? So that doesn't have to be that people interpret trauma as something bad. I look at it more as there are just a lot of sets of things that we're doing in life that served us perhaps, right? Something like that, that you had to do, right? It's like your parents told you don't talk to strangers, right? When you're small and a kid. Well, they didn't tell you at 18, 19 or 20. Well, forget that. Now you've got to start talking. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Right? It's true. <laughs> it, right? So there's tons of things that go on that, ain't, that are linked. And what I found is when I go through it, what happens to people is the biggest challenges are linked to the blueprint that they've been living unconsciously. So what you have to do is understanding someone's histories and experiences and what right now is causing you the most pain, grief, or problems, or whatever it is. And almost always, there's a linkage back at least to the top thing or a top couple things that are really holding you back, right? And so that's, and, and that's everyone. That's not like some, like just one person or five or 10, it's really everyone. And I think that's the problem because the manager, one of the things that I have to go in and help people with is that when they get like two employees and we'll go back to listening example, just because we talked about it. If you have two employees that are poor listeners and you tell one of them some things and they get better and the other person doesn't, well, what I hear everyone telling me is the first person wanted it more and they're trying harder than the second person. But as a manager, you have to understand that it's not that simple. It, it, it can be a skill issue, but it could be a blind spot that they're unaware of, right? Three, it could be a personal issue. And do you understand the employee? And fourth, perhaps they don't really care. And you have to get to the crux of that as well. And then you have to evaluate the actions you're taking, right? Because sometimes, like, let's say it's a low-level employee. Well, you not, may not be able to invest the time to understand the blind spot. And I totally get that. But if it's a rock star lower level employee or it's an upper level person that is really critical, well, the cost of replacing them is significant versus the cost of helping them, right? And that one thing you may be helping them on, maybe the only thing stopping them from being an incredible um, an employee and really adding significant value to the company. Yeah, that makes total sense. I love the analogy as well about not talking to strangers because I think one of the biggest difficult, something I'm really passionate about personally, but something I think is really difficult for uh, the modern professional to grasp is the power of networking, right? And maybe that's some of the things that's holding people back from networking. And I've never certainly myself made that connection, but it does make total sense. You know, I've got two kids and I'm always telling them, don't speak to strangers. So, you know, for them to change that mindset when they get into the the corporate world to suddenly be speaking to as many strangers as possible. Uh, I can understand why there may be a blockage there. So no, I really like that analogy. But listen, stay tuned because uh, in a moment we are going to find out uh, more about Jason. And then in part two, we're going to discuss what Jason terms as the biggest predictor for success, uh, something he titles social wealth in a lot more detail. So do stay tuned. But before we get there, we're going to find out a little bit more about you, Jason. Time to find out more about you. Who are the two people who have been the most influential to you in your career? Well, I really think it actually probably stems back to my mom, right? And I think it's a lot of work ethic. It's being determined. It's caring and serving about other people. So a lot of those foundational things that I end up learning was really important um, to me. And then I don't know if there's any one 
person that necessarily stuck out. I think it was a combination of people that really helped me understand that I had to get to really know fundamentally the people around me and I had to raise them up because otherwise I couldn't do my greatest work. And then there were instances where I did great things, but other people around me weren't and I didn't feel fulfilled there. It was when the team succeeded as a whole that it brought me the most joy, right? And I think that I learned that from a variety of people over the years. And I don't think anyone really necessarily spelled it out like that, but I just put it together. And so for me, that realization was probably one of the most important things. And those people in my life have been critical. And, and I think just like your networking comment, I've had the opportunities to meet and interact with a lot of different people because I sought out those opportunities and sought out to learn from them and ask them questions, which has really been helpful. Makes total sense. I also think if uh, if your mom is one of the most influential people, that's a pedestal that's really difficult to put anyone alongside. So uh, I, I get why after that, it kind of needs to be everybody else. Uh, are there any resources that have really helped you on your journey? I think it's one, I read a lot and books and listen to podcasts. I'll take online classes. I've gotten coaches. I've gone to conferences and events, right? I've sat down, asked people questions. I interview them. I think you have to have a wide variety of sources because everything is a little bit different, right? Because if you sit down and have an opportunity to talk to some great managers or other people and ask them things that they're doing, you can uncover some great strategies, processes, and tools that you may not be able to get elsewhere, right? Um, and then you, every vehicle, every one of these things has a different way that you can pick up things and they all work together, right? In concert. And I just think staying curious and staying hungry and value learning is something that is one of the most undervalued qualities. And in today's world, it's absolutely critical because you have to be on the cutting edge because today it's more about the people management and people operations that will end up hurting you the most versus everything else because it's the least immature part of management and leadership today. And you're seeing this across the board when you look at, you know, CRHOs getting together and no one knows what to do next, right? Everyone's doing it differently. And when everyone else is doing it differently, you know that people are struggling to find the answers of what to do, right? Just ask any person who's running human resources at a high level, how are you building trust in your company? You'll get a thousand different answers and you'll get very little details on the granular levels of actually how they're doing it, which then goes to show you that people don't understand. And that's the first part of it. You know, someone said to me the other day, it's like we're, we're, you know, the technology and a lot of the, a lot of the other things were in the late stage, right? Of doing it. People have done it. So the, it's way more mature, but the people side of things is really immature because really companies never cared about this until lately because the job market is great globally compared to where it is and people are moving around more. And the values have switched on what people want from a job. Well, we're obviously seeing that as, a, as an HR recruiter. We see those changes every day. So you're absolutely on the money. I totally agree. So what was, what was the last thing then that you, you saw or you read or even you experienced that, 
that changed the way that you view the world? Was there any, has there been anything significant recently where you've read something on, you know what, I've never considered something in that way before? You know, I, one of the people that I like that I'm following now is a guy by his name, Josh Burson and it's B-E-R-S-I-N. And he was a consultant with Deloitte and now he does his own thing looking at, you know, the people side of things and more of the employee experience and culture. And I think he's definitely moving the needle and farther along, which I think is really helpful for people to start to understand. Um, you know, the other thing too, that I go back to is a fundamental and I love her books is Brene Brown. Um, she's got a lot of great books. The last few books she's written on leadership management and people, um, and talking about belonging, vulnerability and connection and some of the basic concepts that people mouth the words, but they really don't know what they are and they're not putting them into use. And so I give all my clients those books because they're really helpful in terms of developing the skill sets that can help you build great things. There's another book that had some pretty good tips I read by a woman who's a Facebook um, executive. <clears throat> Her name's Julie Zhao. It's Z-H-O-U. It's like a making of a manager. And there's a bunch of really good um, tips inside of that book. So those are just a few resources, but there's plenty of them out there. I'll try and put some links to those in the episode notes. So if you're listening to this and you want to access those uh, very quickly, check a look at the episode notes. I'll make sure there's some links to the, some of those uh, those resources. So I think I like this next question, Jason, because I think it is a question that I have in all of my HR Lindy podcasts, but I, I know it's also a question included in your very own game, Cards Against Mundanity. So here it is. If you could be given any superpower, what would it be and why? Well, I love the ability to wake up early in the morning and jump out of bed because I'm a runner and I'm training for a marathon and getting up at four to five is just wow. really hard. So uh, if, if, that, if that could happen, boy, that would make my life a lot better. No, fair enough. I can sympathize with that. I'm a runner as well. So best of luck. When is your marathon? Doing my next one in uh, May, at the end of May. And it's in right side of, outside of uh, Los Angeles in the, in the mountain. So I'm hoping to qualify for Boston. I've just started running a little over two years ago. So um ever. So well good luck. Uh, good luck. It's uh yeah, I wish you the best of luck with that. Uh last question before we jump back into the uh the, the deep dive really into social wealth. Um if you could invite three people to a dinner party, who would they be and why? Wow. Uh, you know what? I would probably say Richard Branson because I think he's been always way ahead of his time and all the things that he was doing and the connections they end up making. I would say Abraham Lincoln in the United States as a president, because what he had to do was uniting, try to unite people who were really so different and bring them, you know, all together. Uh, you know, and I probably would say the last person I would say is probably on the self-development other side was saying Oprah, because I'd be fascinated to see with all these people that she's interacted and worked with some of the truths, some of the people that were, weren't, and just what she's gained from all of these different people. Sure. I mean, her influence is so significant. I think she must be the most popular answer to that question I've had in this series of podcasts. A lot of people reference Oprah. So uh, you're not alone in, in, in that. And I think she's, uh, it shows how much of an inspiration she's been to so many. You know what's interesting, too, about I was going to interrupt, but one of the things that I grew up in Chicago 
So I saw Oprah Winfrey and she used to be on this local channel um, in Chicago, ABC, like an affiliate. And she had some talk show earlier in the morning that was just nothing, right? And I remember thinking, seeing it, boy, I wonder one day this talk show seems a little interesting. What will ever happen to her, right? So it just goes to show you that if you innovate, you work really hard and you focus on your own self-development and you're really vulnerable and open with other people, there's some pretty amazing things that can happen to you over time because it wasn't like she woke up and inherited all these things, right? It was a lot of hard work and a lot of time and having to do things that were massive risks and things she had no idea how they would turn out. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, expertly put. But listen, we're going to jump to a quick advert break. When we, when we come back, we're going to find out more about the biggest predictor for success and a little bit more about your best-selling book, Social Wealth, as well. So stay tuned. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting, and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Shaping the future of human resources together. Final questions. So I would like to turn our attentions to your best-selling book, Jason, if I may. It's called Social Wealth. I will put a link in the episode notes for those interested in getting yourselves a copy. It's a how-to guide on building personal and professional relationships. It's sold more than 60,000 copies. It's been number one in four business and self-help categories, and it's got more than 135-star reviews. So I definitely recommend, if you're listening to this podcast, go to the episode notes, check it out for yourself. But ultimately, in your book, you state that you've discovered what you call the biggest predictor for success. And you term that something as called social wealth. So I wonder if you can just talk to our listeners a little bit more about your book, about the what social wealth means uh, and why indeed you, you see it as the biggest predictor for success. Well, when I started writing this book in, pro- in 2013, one of the things that I found that on every client I was dealing with struggled in at some level was relationships, right? And building great ones, especially, I mean, not only on the business side, but the personal side. And that caused them the most amount of pain. So I really wanted to give them a blueprint guide on how to do this, take all the fluff out, take the stories out of it and just give them a guide based on the interactions I had in, you know, interviews, extensive interviews I did with really successful people and just try to give them a way that if they went through this book and never interacted me, they could significantly elevate their lives as a whole. Because we're really some of the people that we interact with, right? There's the quote by Jim Rohn, you know, you're the sum of the five people, the closest people that, you know, are part of your life. And I believe that that's true. Maybe the number's not right, but it really is. And when you look at social wealth, it's your network of people around you. But more importantly, it's the indirect network behind them. So it's the people that they know and your ability to tap into all of these people 
are what really is the predictor of your, you know, success and fulfillment in your life, right? Of the things that you end up finding because we end up settling, right? Because one of the questions I asked people many, many years ago is like, well, if you had a chance to pick a best friend out of a room of five people where you could interview everyone and ask them any questions or a room out of a hundred people where you could do the same thing, right? And time didn't matter, right? You could just do it and get to all these people. What would you pick? Well, almost everyone said 100 people because they have more choices and different types of people, right? But then I asked them, well, why are you living like there's only five people in the room? So it's really a factor. A lot of this is a numbers game because you have to meet more people to figure out who is your tribe, right? It also helps you figure out yourself. And type of people may get you upset or you're fearful of because you have to find a bridge to those people too. Because a lot of times when I'm working with leaders, they'll gravitate towards people like themselves. So I realize there are not a lot of women leaders, but a lot of times when I'm having conversations with women that are in leadership positions, I'm like, well, it's not like every man's sexist or every man just wants another man. Because what ends up happening is I've been a lot of times in companies where there are all men on the leadership team. Well, not the CEO doesn't gravitate towards every person in the leadership team. They typically gravitate towards people that are like them, especially when they're under significant pressure, fear, and they have imposter syndrome, which every leader ends up having, right? So you have to identify this in yourself and understand it. And, you know, having this network, doing all these things help you and also helps you build great relationships that are meaningful to you and that will actually add to your life. Now, there may be some HR and professionals listening to this who are feeling like they've hit a plateau in their career. Perhaps they're struggling to get to grips with how they can manage and essentially lead people better. So with this in mind, and in your very expert opinion, Jason, I wondered if you could elaborate on the 10 essential leadership skill sets that, that can really help these business leaders feel motivated again, that can help increase their resiliency, which obviously is really important in leadership. And also their bounce back ability, if you like, in relation to when they're experiencing things like rejection or, or setbacks. So what would those 10 essential leadership skill sets be? Yeah, I mean, one of them is just listening to people, right? I think listening and getting feedback is absolutely essential when it's something that seems so small, but it's really not because, again, it's the questions, right? The questions, the better questions you act, the better feedback and how you're understanding people. You know, the other thing that's not really in those that I think if you're an HR person, you have to do today is link back your actions to business outcomes. And how can you help senior leaders solve their biggest problems and link back to them and work on that? Because when you do that, it looks like you're caring and you are looking out for them and their attitude will change. Because a lot of times it happens with HR, is it's looked at a block and tackle because they're not fixate, they're not focused and fixated and really have a really maniacal focus on moving the business metrics. And I found the most successful human resources individuals, they view it, their role significantly different from other people, right? I think the other part of it is a lot of this is trial and error, right? And I think people get caught up in perfectionism and getting it always right. And you can't do that, right? Because you're going to face rejection. You're going to face problems and hurdles. Because when you look at risk, success and failure are on opposite sides of the coin. 
And so if you don't go for it and realize that that growth comes at a risk, you're just going to stand pat. And that's the problem with a lot of HR people is they just don't go out of their comfort zone and they stay locked in this role. And they're not seen as strategic because they're not coming to the table. A lot of times people are like, well, I need a chair at the table. And I'm like, well, how about you bring your chair, put it in the room and sit down and have a conversation and offer up a way to solve one of the biggest problems in the organization. People will start listening because they need your help. And I'll, what I will do as well, I'll put um, the list of the 10 that you list in your in your research in the episode notes as well, so people can get a little bit more familiar with, with some of the, the, the key points. I mean, you've mentioned them all in, in detail during the course of this podcast. You mentioned just then courage and bravery, uh, social awareness, obviously important, and obviously the, the ability to be curious and uh, build relationships and trust and getting to know people up close. And they're kind of all all the elements that form into those 10, those, those 10 essential leadership skill sets. So I'm going to build upon those in the episode notes. Do take a look at that as well. Now, we're nearly towards the end of the podcast, Jason. Um, and it would be remiss of me as uh, yourself. You're a very, very experienced podcast host. And it's clear that you're an individual who believes hugely in the power of networking and building personal relationships. We've discussed it in depth. So I wondered if you could share with our listeners, especially the introverts amongst us, and there will be introverts listening to this podcast, if you could share your top three networking tips, it could really help speed up the relationship building process. Yeah, because I think one of the things too on the introvert side of thing, which I think is really interesting for people uh, to, to realize or to know is that over the last year, I, I've, well, I speak a lot and, and I'm constantly asking people that are self-identified, they identify themselves as introverts, what's stopping them, right? And I've asked them the question, if I could get rid of the small talk, and I could get you into more substantial conversations. Would you do more of them? And almost everyone says yes. Because the tiring part of the conversation is the small talk where they feel like they're wasting their time because the interactions take away their energy. It doesn't give them energy. So you have to use that wisely. So one of the things that I tell people is that you have to ask better, deeper questions and don't be afraid of what the other person's going to say or think, you need to get to that quicker because otherwise you, you just will make excuses not to do it, right? And what I told, and I've done this myself in my Cards Against Mundanity game. I used to ask the question when I put in the groups of people, just like for speaking wise, like what superpower would you like to use, right? Well, now I've changed the first question typically to what's the, the biggest lesson you've learned in the last year? Now it may seem pretty subtle, but it, it's a much deeper question. And what I found is the deeper questions that I actually have people start off with that are complete strangers, right? None of these people know each other, that they actually enjoy and get much more out of a conversation. So what I've found with people is you have to start with deeper questions. And it doesn't really matter what do they do or where are they from, because if the conversation moves forward, you'll learn all that information later. You don't need to ask that at the beginning. Right. Because then people zone you out anyways, because they've had these conversations thousands of times and they haven't worked out. You want to ask them questions where they actually have to engage and they can't look around. So I'll ask questions like, you know, so, you know, what's the most important lesson you've learned in the last year? Sure. You could ask people what brought you to the event or some simple little question in the beginning. Right. Or you could ask a question like, what are you most excited about in your life right now? Now, I love that question because if someone has nothing, then you already know that probably not a good person to talk to because if they're not excited about their life, like why should you be, right? 
And then you can start deeper questions, right? Like of question, other questions of that nature, right? And keep asking them and digging into things that they're passionate about and really care about because that mimics one of the things that we've all had. We've all had conversations with people that like at least once, right? Where within five or 10 minutes, you felt like you've known that person all your life. Well, the reason is, is because someone was vulnerable and started to share more than normal. And what happened is that skyrocketed. So you learned more information about that person than you normally ever do. So you feel a sense of closeness to them, right? And a sense of urgency to stay in contact or to at least reach out to them or to be open to it, right? So you have to start mimicking that. And the thing about it is, is to get to what people care about and to ask them questions that matter to them rather than the superficial ones that you don't want to ask. They really don't want to answer, right? But everyone thinks they have to do this sort of orchestrated dance when they really don't need to. And so you've just got to take the lead and start doing it. And you'll see a dramatically different response from people. Maybe not everyone, right? But more people than you think. And you'll have much better conversations. And you'll have much deeper ones. And you'll create connections that actually matter rather than having to ask a bunch of people boring questions and then hope something comes out of it, right? And then you say to yourself, geez, I didn't even really want to get up and ask someone or talk to someone in my office or work from another department because it was just stupid conversation and just wasted my time. When if you took a different act, it'd be better. Yeah, and then, you know what? I was just thinking that you know, as, as you talk there, a lot of the questions you ask, and I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely guilty of asking those supplementary questions from time to time, but you often don't care about the answer, which sounds terrible, right? But if someone tells me they're from Arizona, someone tells me they're from Coventry in the UK, it doesn't really matter. It, it, it's not advancing my knowledge of them or them as a person necessarily. It, as you say, you're going to get that information later anyway, just through conversation. If you, you know, if they tell you they're passionate about football or soccer, you know, and they say that they're a, you know, a Spurs fan, for example, that probably tells me they're from, they've got London roots and you can kind of, Make information and, and, and garner information from the other questions you ask. You're absolutely right. So many times I've asked questions and you go, actually, you're trying to break the ice, but you don't really care about the answer. But you, you do want to speak to them. It's not that you don't want the conversation, but you want to get to that deep material. Um, and uh, so why not go there earlier? I think that's... Um, yeah, and the other, yeah. And the other problem is if I keep asking you demographic questions and other things, the other problem that ends up going on because of our brain is wired for survival is those questions are sizing me up, right? Si like trying to really paint a picture of the other person and sort of put them on trial. So they have to prove themselves that they're worthy to have a conversation with them because of their job, the position, other things. And that makes people recoil naturally from the other person. And so that also works against you. So that's another reason to avoid it. Because when you ask someone, what do they do for a living? You're naturally thinking, well, that person does this job, so they make this amount of money. Or this person has this job, so they can do something for me. Well, when you avoid it completely, right, no matter what they're doing, no matter where it is, they're more apt to help you. They want to be engaged because you're taking a different route than 99% of the people they interact with you. And regardless of the questions at that point, they're intrigued of why you would do this. And it ends up mimicking what the people in their closest to them would actually ask them, right? 
in a meaningful conversation. So then what happens is, is psychologically, they start putting you in their inner circle, even though you're obviously a distant acquaintance or you've met just met for the first time. And that opens up a multitude of possibilities that could never be possible. But when you start down the other road, right, you position yourself actually in a really poor way. So psychologically, when you go through the actual interactions and what goes in people's head, because I've done that, there's a reason why you do this and why it works, right? Not every time, like we said, but even if it only works 60 to 70% of the time, those are going to be way higher interactions than the other ones you would have had. So they will be game-changing for you, both personally and professionally. The minute you ask a job title, as you say, you start creating a picture in your own mind that may be stereotypical, it may be discriminative, it may be completely unfair. But actually, if you ask a question that, you know, that allows them to paint the picture for you, you know, whether it's about a passion or something else, it completely changes the dynamic. So um, that's certainly an amazing tip that I think many people listening feel like I am are going to take going to take away. So that's fantastic. What are two other key networking tips you could add to that, Jason? So we've got, we're asking good questions. Uh, want to take full advantage of having a bit of a networking guru on the podcast while I have you. So what would be the next two key networking tips you'd advise? Well, you know, one of the things, obviously, you want to get their contact information and follow up with them, right? I think that you, you know, it's always helpful to find out if you can help them solve a challenge or anything that they're doing. Because once you make a deposit in the bank account, it's easier for you to do that. The other thing that you can do, which... A lot of most people don't do, but it's something that was super helpful for me was when I was networking and do well, I am now too, but when I'm going out like in different cities and I can line it up, I'll invite people um, out in a group, right? I'll invite them to meet me somewhere because a lot of the times it ends up happening is, right, I, I can't do all these one-on-one meetings all the time. But if I can get people together in a group, right, and the group could be three people, it doesn't have to be more. What happens is I can get to meet these people a little bit more, right? But three of them at once or two of them at once rather than one. And perhaps that individual will meet the other person and that will be of high value. Well, now I've created something meaningful because I've connected them, right? So it takes a lot of the pressure off of me and it puts it on them as well, right? To make these connections and have the conversation, right? And how I do it is like, hey, you know, I've got a couple of great people to meet. I'm going to lunch on this date. It'd be great for you to come out, right? And a lot of people will do it because the fear of missing out, FOMO, right? And so they'll do it because they're like, wow, it's an opportunity for me to meet some people. The other person is setting it up. So the only thing I have to do is show up, right? There's a lot of people that won't as well. But you know, if you invite 10 people and only three come or two come, what does it matter, right? It, you focus on the two and you've used your time pretty wisely. And there's much more that can come out of it beneficial for the other people, which then helps you. And you're doing less work and you don't have to carry the conversation. And so all around, the only thing that it requires is you finding the place, right? And it doesn't cost you anything because everyone pays for themselves. So the only thing it really does is you have to text them and ask the question, right? And you can just, I, when I'm doing it too, just logistically, I literally cut and paste and do a pretty similar message. And maybe I'll, I'll add some personal thing in there, but not much. So it only takes me like 30 seconds to send. So it's not like this is some complicated thing. 
that take forever, right? And then that's what I find a lot of people end up doing, right? So you'll see, you could Google this thing called the Jeffersonian dinner. And what it does is that people go to dinner parties where they're asking, they put a placard out, which has a question on it, and everyone goes around and asks it. Well, there's a reason why that there are a lot of people that do that that are higher level, because they understand that 10 people at a table is better than one in most instances to get to know all these people and to allow them to do the same, right? And then let's say you invite two people and one of them, you're like, wow, I really would like to get to know the person a little bit better. Well, then you have a much more informed choice in using your time more wisely to spend with that person. And, and, and right, and other people aren't going to get mad at you because you're inviting and doing something and trying. And the only people that invite them out to other things like this are the people that are closest to their lives. So they feel a natural affinity to you, even if they're go and they don't get anything out of it. No, I think it's a brilliant example. I mean, I'm hoping the HR and L&D listeners to this podcast are taking notes and, and are, are taking reference because as a podcast host, Jason, I certainly am. This is an action that I could certainly make more use of. I do many, many, many one-to-one meetings in London. I live in Devon, so when I go go to London, which is 200 miles away, I tend to spend the week there. And I, I kind of fill up my time with multiple one-to-one meetings. It's never really occurred to me to bring them all together. Um, a, will probably be a, a lot more fun for everyone concerned. B, it'll be a big time con- uh, saver. And actually, these are all like-minded individuals, and there's absolutely no way at all that they, they wouldn't be able to get value by seeing each other. So it's something that I'm 100% as a, as a recruiter going to be implementing as a result of this podcast. So, wow, what a great way to finish. So thank you so much. I've taken notes and it's, it's really put into play. Here's another thing to think about how creatively, so you can invite your clients out, right? And invite those people and getting them together. So they can meet other people that are in similar roles to them and you could just put it together, right? Or anyone at your firm could. So there's a lot of value to end up doing, right? And, and again, you invite 10, if three come, who cares, right? Because those three people will meet each other. And then you just start the conversation and ask some questions to them. And you can use my game and say, hey, I've got a fun game to play. Would you mind playing it? And everyone will. And you ask a couple questions, they're going to walk away knowing these people really well. And you've added a lot of value to them. And they're going to feel better about you, right? And better about the organization. So it's a win-win. So there's a lot of ways to organize this and orchestrate this in many different ways that you can do. And trust me, I've done this hundreds of hundreds of times. It's never not gone well. Now, even if I walked away and thought to myself, eh, that went just okay, all of the people come back to me and say, oh, thank you for inviting. I met so-and-so, right? Or I had a great conversation or something will happen. And you'll see that being of high value. No, I love it. Well, I've already downloaded your, your Cards Against Mundanity. As I say, it's completely free to download. You can purchase the cards as well. But um, if you want to access the game, take a look. I'll put a link in the episode notes so you can go and download uh, the game yourself. It's completely free. Uh, I want to say a huge thank you, Jason. We've been a, a full hour of amazing content. I thank you so much for joining me uh, on the HRND podcast today. Uh, last question for you really is where can our listeners connect with you online? If they want to find out more information, where would you advise they go? Useful links, keeping the HR L&D community connected. So you can go to my website. It's jasontroy.com. That's Jason, T-R-E-U.com. And then you can go to Amazon for my book, Social Wealth. There's links on my website and then cardsagainstmundanity.com 
for the game and fantastic and i will also put a link all those links will be on the episode notes i'll also put a link to your amazing podcast as well uh, it's called executive breakthroughs uh, so i'll put a link to your podcast so hopefully you can get a few subscribers to your amazing content if you've enjoyed being heard today you can find out a lot more and hear a lot more of jason's voice on his own podcast which is uh, pretty amazing in itself so thank you ever so much for joining me of course if you are an hr or lnd professional listening to this podcast and you've got an hr his or lnd related vacancy and you want some recruitment support from a bit of an authority and an HR expert, then please do give me a call. I'd love to show you what a great HR recruitment experience can feel like. Maybe we'll be meeting up in London, playing the guards, Cards Against Mindanity game real soon as well. So get in touch if you're interested in meeting up for a group session. But you can contact me, nick at jjrecruitment.com or give me a call 01727 800 377. It just leads me to say a huge thank you once again to Jason Troy. JasonTREU.com if you want to find out more about him again link in the episode notes otherwise thanks for listening folks and i look forward to bringing you the next episode of the hr lnd podcast real soon thanks jason thank you so much for tuning into the hr lnd podcast with your host nick day of jga hr recruitment if you need help with a current hr or lnd vacancy then please get in touch with nick and his team all contact details can be found in the episode notes in the meantime to make sure you never miss an episode please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels till next time